Hello and welcome to the words we use. Have you ever struggled with finding the right words to give meaning, depth, and clarity to your message? We have, and that's exactly what we're going to examine. Come along with us as we expand our communication knowledge. TWWU team, please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Pat. Hi, I'm Sue. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi, I'm Carissa. Hi, I'm Bill. Hi, I'm Lisa. Hi, I'm Gary. And, and we, we are, are the Words Good afternoon, podcasters. I'm excited to introduce Sarah Miles, our guest on today's podcast. Sarah is currently teaching high school English at Holy Angels Academy in Richfield, Minnesota. There will be a wealth of teachable moments and takeaways for the words we use, podcast listening audience. Sarah is in her eighth year of teaching high school English. She has her undergraduate degree in communication arts and literature from St. Cloud State University and a master's degree in curriculum instruction from Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Sarah is also a licensed reading specialist for grades K through 12 and has four years of experience working with below grade level high school readers. Literacy is her professional passion and family is her personal passion. Sarah, what inspired you to become an English teacher? Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited. And as I told you via text, a little nervous. <laughs> um, what inspired me to become a teacher, I believe was that I myself as a learner struggled. And there was many interventions along my kind of academic journey that when I looked back, you know, my senior year of high school and into my first year of college, I thought, wow, those people really influenced me. And I felt really called, which I know that's a cliche that people say, oh, you know, how do you get called? Well, I, I just didn't think anything else. There was literally nothing else that came into my mind. I just knew like, yep, I know what it's like to struggle. I know what it's like to have people who care, who are passionate. And I just was like, this is what I got to do. And so that's really what drove me to become an English teacher was not actually because I excelled. I was not an AP student or anything. It was because I struggled so much. It was such an effort. And I just thought kids need to have that. They need to have a teacher who says, oh, I get what it's like to not like this. So. Absolutely. Great. Can you think of a teacher? Does a teacher pop out or come to mind like, oh, I remember Mrs. So-and-so. She was just, you know, so helpful or something. Oh, ab absolutely. So Val Carroll was my second grade teacher at Sheridan Hills Elementary School in Richfield. She changed my world because we had moved to Richfield and she sent me a letter basically welcoming me to school before we even started. And I was nervous because I was leaving a support system at my previous school. And she just swooped me in and it was, I mean, second grade is very vivid for me, which is wild to think about. And then Ann Doherty was a reading specialist I had, bless her heart, because I was a feisty little kid who did not want to go to <laughs> reading help. I was mean and she was diligent and she, she would, you know, even when I would say, I hate this, I hate all of this. And she would say, well, if you read this book, you get Dairy Queen or if you do this, you know, and she just stuck with me. And so that perseverance, I think about every once in a while when I have a particularly difficult student, not only do I relate to that student personally, but I also think, okay, I got to channel my Ann Doherty here. I got to not give up. And I actually had the opportunity to write a master's paper about 
my literacy journey and I wrote about her and then I saw her um, at a wedding and I just started bawling and she was bawling. It was just this whole full circle literacy moment of somebody who really transformed my life. It was beautiful. That's really great that you had those people. We can always, I think back on, you know, teachers I've had over the years that have helped me and learning was always a challenge for me. So I always remember those teachers that were kind enough to go slow enough, as I say, because sometimes, you know, if you're in that place and they're on page 10 and you're still on page two doing the equation and you're just like, ah, slow down, mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's great, you know, that we have those teachers that are in that position to help us. What were some of the traditions that you like to instill on the first day of school? And how did that change this year with COVID and everything kind of being sideways and upside down? So typically I like to begin out my school year by introducing myself to my students in a way that's like personalized, like a way that says like, I am a person, I'm not just your teacher. So I, t I have a slideshow that has pictures of my two dogs, that has pictures of my husband, of my family. I say my favorite books that I like. So I try to remove the whole teacher part of it and just say like, hey, I'm a person too. Um, and then I give them an opportunity to introduce themselves to me. Um, one of my favorite things that I used to do at the beginning was an album cover. And then they had to pick five songs that would be on their album. And then I would do it with them. And that would be like our first day of school thing. Like, what does your album cover look like? And then what are your you know, top five songs that describe where you're at right now? And it, it's just a way to kind of break it down, like break the ice, but not in an uncomfortable icebreaker manner that, like sometimes I'm like, oh, I, do. I don't want to play games. <laughs> Kids sometimes don't like that. But this year was very different. At Holy Angels, they asked that we not spend too much time with icebreaker opportunities and just really jump into the curriculum. It had been so long since they had really received instruction. I kind of just hit the ground running. It was like, here's the link for your syllabus. If you'd like to go over it, here's five rules that you need to know and we're going. And it's very bizarre to have a screen that has 15 kids in it and then have 15 students sitting in front of you to make the class of 30 because we're doing a, a, a blended hybrid kind of thing with and so it's it's wild I don't know if even on week three I understand <laughs> when kids are in my class and not but it's just bizarre it makes me feel very disconnected yeah did you have any thoughts you wanted to share yeah Sarah what words do you use to encourage or influence below level readers to make it positive? I have like this poster in my room that says frustration means you care because I tell students if you're not, if kids who aren't frustrated don't actually care. So if you're feeling a feeling, it means that there is something happening in you and that's awesome. It's also, you know, so I always tell kids, I talk about, I talk about frustration and how that's a powerful thing and that it's okay to get frustrated and angry. I also tell them um, a lot of things about um, that reading is like running or exercising or lifting weights. You don't do it all at once. You gradually build. And so we're just in the building stages. Specific words though would be embracing the frustration. I talk about rigor and how rigor is different for each person. I, rigor is not just assigning a lot of pages and saying, go at it. It's understanding who we are as individuals and what we want to build towards. So I talk about, you know, rigor is different. Don't compare yourself to other people. That's not helpful. You're only going to discourage yourself. And then I always say it's a lifelong skill. 
There are people in the world who will never learn how to read and write in their own language. And you have such an opportunity. It's just, we're getting there. And so those are kind of things, words that I use um, to help support them. I don't sugarcoat it for them either, because I think that that's important. You know, I tell them day one with my, uh, when I used to teach reading remediation with students, day one, they'd take a test that would tell them the grade level they read at. And I'm like, if that, if, if you feel embarrassed or you feel anything, you need to let go of like being embarrassed and be ready for a challenge. Like this is an awesome opportunity for you to grow. And by the end, it would just be so amazing. Draining. It's very draining. <laughs> and I felt burnt out, but I, I mean, it was such a rewarding experience to work with seniors in high school and watch them in the matter of a semester because we did semesters at my previous school and watch them go from a fourth grade reading level to like an eighth grade reading level in just 16 weeks. It's, I don't know, it's powerful. Mm -hmm. You have to have (laughs) buy-in. I had candy drawers full of candy. I used to have granola bars. (laughs) I would bring everything. Thank God, you know, I don't have kids, but I would be invested. Those were my kids. I was buying like truckloads of things to keep them invested. Mm-hmm. You answered my, my second question. What incentives do you use? So that would be a great incentive. Oh, absolutely. Gatorades, Diet Mountain Dew. I mean, I was, because I work with high schoolers and if we, if you have reading for 90 minutes, first hour of the day, how am I going to sell that? So it, it is a lot of coaxing and breaks and chat. And, you know, I used to always call us a reading family, making the kids feel like they're not, not given up on and it's not a punishment. How do you use the, how do you use incentives this year? That's hard. Cause I don't, so I don't teach reading remediation anymore. So incentivizing students this year, I am fortunate at Holy Angels. Many of my students are extrinsically motivated. So they, they are intrinsically motivated. So they, they right. internally want to do well. So they, the extrinsic motivators aren't as necessary. Um, but I motivate kids by offering them breaks. I'm like, you give me 10 and I'll give you five. You know, give me 10 minutes of uninterrupted instruction. I'll give you five minutes stretch break, go to the bathroom, the kids on Zoom. I'm like, turn off your camera, stretch a little bit, get some coffee, come back. I think that's one way. I also, a lot of assignments that I choose to do allow choice. And I do believe that that's an incentive to do things is if a student feels empowered or like they can make the decision. So we try um, the other English teachers that I work with who are amazing, amazing people are with me on that. So we, we try to make, let's, how, much, how much choice can we give here? <laughs> that usually goes over better. My next question is, how do you feel about students reading adventure books instead of like Ivanhoe or Shakespeare? I mean, what if they wanted to read Stephen King, Carrie, <laughs> or, yeah. uh, or, or not like, sure, like Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, what, and that, but yet they'd be able to talk about it. What do you think about that? Oh, I am a strong advocate. I'll go back again to my experience working in reading. I mean, my husband would say, you can't, you've got to stop buying books. I, you wouldn't believe the library I had at my own personal one and my classroom. I had six bookshelves just full of books, everything. You mean, I'm talking graphic novels, which I count as literature. I mean, I had everything. So when you talk about um, a variety of literature, I think if you're trying to 
um, instill a value of reading, you have to be flexible and understand that reading means it could be, you know, Gearhead magazine that counts as reading, especially for someone who's a non-reader. I, I would let kids, some of my seniors, like, if you want to read a magazine about something you're interested in, that's fine. But you will have to tell me what that article was about. You know, I think that's reading. And we sometimes we belittle or we say reading only counts if it's in the literary canon or literature only counts if it is whatever blank definition. And I, I firmly disagree with that. The worst though is when students <laughs> read something bizarre and then want me to read it too. And I'm like, I can't. It's not my cup of tea. <laughs> like vampire stuff. <laughs> I'm like, I can't. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, like decades ago, I fell in love with uh, reading James Michener, and I learned I learned so much about each part of the world that he wrote about. And some of the some of the passages in those books I remember to this day. The first book I read of his was The Source, and I, I fell in love with learning more about the Middle East because I have a Middle Eastern background, and uh, just fascinating stuff he writes about. So yeah, I can see really learning about the world from novels or historical novels, as in, as in the case of James Mitchner. I had to write down that book title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, The Source, it's a phenomenal book. It was the first book I read of his, and it was over a thousand pages. And I said, I'm not going to be intimidated, but I was in my early 20s. I'm not going to be intimidated by the length of this book. I'm going to read it every day. By the third page, I was really into the book, and I wasn't going to stop reading it. Awesome. It's a good way to get involved. It's exciting when you get in a book and you just can't stop turning the pages. Mm -hmm. I think it's fun that Sue, you and Sarah are both in the teaching field. Do you have any thoughts for Sarah? I have questions for her. <clears throat> Lots of thoughts. I mean, when you have, um, when you've been teaching for a while, your lesson plans may get a little stale and how do you keep them fresh? That's a good question. One of my favorite things about teaching is curating like if I could do that if that could be teaching I think I would do it because I hate grading I hate grading but I always love thinking of new ways to kind of grab their attention and so I find that my problem is that I often I, I'm not doing the same thing every year I might teach the same text but I'm doing something different with it so okay. it keeps me on my toes I also am I use a lot of resources off Pinterest so Pinterest mm -hmm. you know I'll, I'll type in the text and then it'll pull up a bunch of other teachers, you know, what they've done with it. Or, you know, I found a really cool, um, somebody for Catcher in the Rye put together a Google, like a Google map that you could drag and drop the little person on the map. And then you could walk the route that Holden Caulfield walked and see all of the things that he describes throughout the book. And I'm like, oh, I got to use this. Because I mean, mm -hmm. those kids who are non-readers, they don't necessarily picture in their head or those students who aren't necessarily familiar with New York or the area, now they've got this visual. And I just think, I mean, those kind of things kind of keep it fresh and going. Um, I use a lot of YouTube because kids love YouTube. So I use YouTube videos all the time. And that it kind of answers my next question. When or why um, is a picture worth a thousand words mm -hmm. or maybe it's not? How do you feel about that phrase, that a picture is, worth a, picture is worth a thousand words? I think it is true when, there's, when somebody has the context or they understand what they're seeing. I, 
use this activity with my students where I post these pictures. It's when I teach civil disobedience um, and I hang all these pictures that are examples of civil disobedience and they can pick up, you know, the 1960s, you know, 1969, they can be like, oh, that's an example of civil disobedience, but if they don't have context for the other one. So the pictures don't say as much to them because they don't right. understand, they don't know what they're seeing. I'm such a strong advocate for words. I, I mm. <laughs> it's so that's hard. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> it's so hard to say that a picture can do more than what a person can say through emotion in their words, but at the same time, pictures can evoke emotion and build connection and bridges and, you know, all those things that words can do as well. But pictures right. can reach people who can't necessarily read as well. And, it's, that's an and interesting... you use YouTube, while you use yep. YouTube, you're also using the pictures too. But you're right, if they're struggling with reading, um, they may struggle with the pictures if they don't understand them. So my next question, if you could take your students on a field trip anywhere, where would you take them and why? And as a high school teacher, you probably don't take your kids on field trips, but I'd be curious where you would take um, high school kids on a field trip if you could. I thought about this one. I'm like, where would I take my students? And of course, I, I think right now what I'm teaching, so in, I, I love American literature. So that's kind of my forte when I think about myself as an English teacher, I'm an American lit um, teacher. And so I think about how I would really love, right now I'm teaching um, like myths and legends from American Indian literature. And I just would love to show students um, up by Red Lake, there's like a group of there's like a movement to restore language and restore tradition. And I feel like I would love to show my students that and not in a YouTube video because we have that rich culture here in Minnesota, which is very rare. And I just feel like me explaining it is not as valuable as I'd love for them to see it, like see other cultures in a culture that exists within us and or like within our state and a culture that was here originally. And I, I just, I think that would be amazing for them and powerful to see instead of like, you know, their white teacher explaining another culture. It, it just would be a firsthand experience. I think is so much more impactful. I also think Washington DC because a lot of the American lit that we read mm -hmm. stems from that area, especially early American lit, but Washington DC is more obtainable for many of my students. They would go there but they probably wouldn't go to like Red Lake or Blue Earth and really experience um, the cultures behind the texts that we're reading. I noticed that they're not teaching cursive writing any longer in my grandson's school. What are your feelings about that, that they're losing this skill? Oh, that's so interesting. It is. That's a controversial thing. Like that is like a, <laughs> it's controversial, I think, between some of, some of the veteran teachers that I've spoken to and some of the new teachers that I've talked with. Um, because I think there's a push for um, digital literacy that is going to be more important as they get older. But at Holy Angels, our students are required that each 
trimester, they hand write a timed paper, a timed essay. Um, it's supposed to mo like mimic the ACT and prepare them to kind of under pressure. You're given a prompt and you go. And so handwriting is still essential. I mean, they have to be able to write and spell and all of those aspects, but cursive, I, I mean, I don't think even, I would say 50% of my students don't know how to write their name in cursive. Like I, I definitely don't think so, but I, I think that it's a sign of technological advancement because before that was part of the technology that was part of what was expected. And then as technology grows, whether it be through phones, through computers, through pens, through whatever it might be, that kind of shifts. And so it's interesting. One of my students said, why do I have to handwrite when I don't even, I can do a digital signature on everything. Everything comes through my phone. Every, you know, I thought that's a really good question when you're looking at it from a, like a technology, like this kid is seeing the world he's going to grow into and he's asking what's the relevancy of it. And I didn't have an answer other than the fact that you have to be able to communicate. But then his counter argument is quite strong when I think about how often I sign my name. I really don't sign my name really ever. So is it still, um, so are the ACT still a handwritten? Yep. Okay. When will they change, I wonder? Well, with COVID, they have had to make some serious adjustments because this whole, so since March, they have not been able to successfully have a, um, an ACT test, which is quite a disservice uh -oh. to those Here juniors and seniors. And so yesterday, no, this morning, excuse me, it's Saturday. This morning, they did their first ACT since, I don't even know how long. And now Holy Angels is hosting one every single Saturday for like the next month to try to help these students who are panicked. They're not digital yet. That's a very good question because AP courses went digital this past semester, trimester, at the end of this last trimester. Hmm. Social media, how does that affect the reading and the writing and just, and typing too? I mean, maybe not writing, but they have to still spill words and put sentences together. How's social media affecting that? So I think one of the things as an English teacher that we've talked about is in our department is the importance of purpose, like yes. explaining to students the purpose of your writing. So if you are engaging in academic writing, then it is imperative that you write in a certain manner. Like we recognize that there's colloquial language, like language that like, if like you're going to text me and say you're gonna do something, I know what you're saying, but you don't do that in your academic writing. And so we deliberately teach students the difference. It does sometimes create an issue with students. I think they know for the most part, the difference between their academic writing and their, you know, speech when they're online. Not always. I also, I feel very fortunate. The group of students, my clientele at Holy Angels that I get the opportunity to teach are very different than at my previous job, which still had a great, I mean, awesome kids, but I had a much, uh, a wider variety of learners that did cause other types of issues where it was hard to teach students like that's not appropriate. Like that's not how we speak. And so, but I don't see that as much at Holy Angels. I think students know when to, you know, flip that switch in their writing. Do the, are the students aware of like professional speaking and just colloquialism and how important being able to speak professionally is? 
I believe so. I, I don't, I can't speak for all schools. And I just know that at Holy Angels, I mean, they give speeches, they get, they get, take, you know, public speaking courses, they, you know, memorize and recite a portion. I think there is something to be said about the fact that these students are in uniform every day, that they put on this role of the student. I'm here to learn. Mm -hmm. I'm in a, I think that does play a role. I really do because even on out of uniform days, they're like night and day. Like, okay. <laughs> I get it. We're all tired because we're wearing sweatpants today, but like we actually have to sit up. <laughs> so I do think, and I, I can say that because I had five years of experience in a school without uniforms. And I do think that there was a casualness compared to boys who are in polo shirts and tucked into, you know, navy blue slacks and girls in pleated plaid skirts and collared shirts or sweaters. Like there's a very, it feels very formal. Like they're here for a job. I think there is a great difference between uniforms and just casual dressing. I think it sets a precedent. I think it sets a priority. And I think it sets them up. I don't want to say it sets them up for greater success, but I think it just gives them the mindset that, you know, you're important, this is important, and I'm here to help and guide and direct you. And, you know, we mean business. We're not just here to, you know, to be best friends and to see how I can make your day go as smooth as possible because I need to prepare you for what happens after high school and the job world and college and, you know, everything that goes along with that. I don't know if anyone has any other feedback on to uniform or not to uniform, but <laughs> Gary, what's your thought? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, sounds awfully serious to me. I remember when I joined Toastmasters, I thought it was all about formal dissertations, uh, informative presentations, persuasive speeches. Then I discovered that I could have some fun with public speaking, believe it or not, if I just included some humor. Now, when kids have to write and when they have to give speeches, are they allowed to use some humor or do they have to take it dead serious? That's a good question. Again, I think I, I'll go back to purpose. So if the assignment is like a literary analysis, there's an appropriate place for humor. Um, but I think a lot of times I find sarcasm and I'm like, okay, so now it sounds a little bit like you are degrading either the text or you're degrading the assignment. And so I would say in like a literary analysis paper, no. Creative writing, yes. Um, they One of the assignments our seniors do are satirical essays, and they are amazing. I mean, I was laugh out loud. They There's definitely creative writing opportunities, formal speeches, even informal speeches, or if they're doing a presentation, I always welcome humor. I remember one of my students, they do this massive research paper, and then at the end, they have to present to the class, and the student was talking about whales, and then midway through, she paused and the screen was just kittens. And she goes, I just felt like this um, presentation was a really big downer. And the whole class was roaring with laughter because here's this little kitten like prancing across the screen. And it's like, okay, back to the whales dying. And it, it, there is room for the humor. Um, it's again, teaching the time and place and also like knowing your audience. So what is appropriate, what's inappropriate, you know, and what's but I absolutely encourage them. I use humor all the time in my class, all the time. So um, yeah, I definitely, I tell them too, not to take everything so seriously. Like you have to find joy in it because if you don't, then you're going to avoid it or think that it's forced, especially with reading. 
yeah, I would agree. They have to, in order to enjoy it, they ha enjoy it. They have to have humor somewhere. Okay. Well, maybe it was because when I was in high school, I never had a teacher as young as you. Thank you, my, gosh. <laughs> my teachers. You don't even know how old I am, but thank you. I'm well, get I can get an idea go. based on your experience and yes, <laughs> just the way you look, because <laughs> the teachers that I had in English looked like they were well past retirement age. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so maybe this doesn't really apply to you because you might understand the language. But when we were, when I was in high school, we seemed to have a language of our own a lot of slang for things. Yeah. Sometimes the teachers would try to talk to us in our language and it, it just didn't sound right. Do you ever get a sense that you or they are speaking a foreign language? Absolutely, um, they speak in a foreign language. I, you know, full disclosure here, I'm a huge like rap, hip hop, R&B fan. So I kind of already feel like I know some of, their, some of the slang. I don't use it because I, it's tacky and it's not cute. Like nobody wants to see it, you know, that like, I don't, I don't know. But I do think, for example, one of just this past Friday, so yesterday, one of my words and the kid, a group of boys said, oh, archetype, like in like this video game they play. And I was like, well, explain to me what it, like, what is the video game doing when you are dealing with archetype? And they're explaining. I said, oh my gosh, yes, this video game is using the word correctly. And I explained it to them and they thought it was so nerdy. They didn't think it was cool at all <laughs> that I was like, yes, your video game is using an archetype correctly. You're building a character based on like a stereotype or a set like outcome that you want. And they're like, okay, cool, cool. And I was, of course, really excited, but they thought it was just too much for them. But it's kind of fun. Sometimes, like, they'll do things, you know, can you be in a TikTok with us? And I usually will say no because I don't want to be on their social media. But one time there was, like, a competition last year where the science teachers were making a bunch of these videos that were getting really popular. And so a group of girls came to us and said, will you please do a rebuttal video from the English department? And so that was fun to kind of get into their mix and do what they do. But um, yeah, I try to avoid. I try to avoid speaking like them. Uh, yeah, it, like you laughed about. It's not a good look. People try too hard. A brave new world, Fahrenheit four fifty one. They still shove those books in front of those kids' faces and expect them to read and understand them. <laughs> Your dismay, yes. So at Holy Angels, we use a very traditional literary canon. So a lot of the literature is going to be the same that's been around that you're talking about. I mean, Catcher in the Rye, Lord of the Flies, Oedipus, Midsummer Night's Dream, um, and then in English, Eleven. So I, that's just some of the stuff we read. Frankenstein. Oh, that. You want to talk about – I feel like I'm, I'm in, like, sales when I have to teach Frankenstein because I'm like – Come on, guys, I'll give you anything. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll give you 50% off your next, you know, like lunch if you'll just give me a chapter. So, yeah, sometimes it's hard. You feel like an exhausted salesperson by the end of Frankenstein. But um, 
and I usually am pretty after the fact. I'll tell kids, you know, they'll be like, oh, Frankenstein's the worst. I'm like, tell me about it. At least you only have to read it once. Some of us is our career. I've been reading it how many times? And I can't, you know, so I just had to fake it. Do you know how exhausted I am? Um, but the in 11th grade, we've been really talking about how we need to diversify and we need to grab some more contemporary texts. And so there's some fonts, of course, I can't remember. Um, it'll come to me. But Fool's Crow has to do with, um, it's a coming of age story about um, a boy from the Blackfoot tribe. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, most students say that's one of their favorite books that they read. And it's just really powerful. There's a little bit, there's a love story. There's um, fighting, there's history in it because it's about, you know, land agreements and false promises and then going to war. And then there's a lot about the Blackfoot culture and the intertribal fighting and, oh, it's just awesome. Kids just grab onto that book because I think it's more contemporary. I think it's more relatable. I think, you know, but then I also have kids who say my favorite book that I read while I was at school or in high school was Catcher in the Rye. You like Holden? Okay. So oh. it, it, it is a lot of that traditional literature. At my uh, previous school, I taught an elective. So we used to, seniors didn't have to just take like a senior or 12th grade English. They got to take two literature electives and one writing elective. And that was fun because from a teaching perspective, that gives us, I was allowed to teach a course and pick the, the content and it was really fun. I taught a survival literature class where all the texts we read were survival stories. So I would start with like alive about the Andes mountain um, plane crash and the cannibalism. And of course, what kid doesn't want to read about cannibalism. And then we'd move on to move into like the road by Cormac McCarthy, which is intense and it's got a weird writing style and kids would be like, there's not even, you know, there's no punctuation. I'm like, Hey, once you get good at this rules, don't even apply to you anymore. So if you like this, keep writing, you know, so it, it gave a lot of opportunity to show them different pieces. And I used to love teaching that class. So there's oh. hope out there. <laughs> Bill, you had some interesting questions. Oh, I do. Well, thank you, Lisa. You know, we talked, uh, we talked earlier about, or I did about the source by James Michener. And I read that book right after I had finished high school. Now, had I read that book in high school as an assignment, I think I would have majored in history in college instead of accounting. So, Sarah, what do you consider a good high school read? Oh, that's a good question. A good high school read, I think, is relatable in the sense that a student can put themselves into the piece in a, or it has to evoke some type of emotion. Um, I think one of the reasons I remember some of my favorite books is because of the emotion that it brought about, whether it was humor or sad or fear, you know, all of those feelings that we get. So I think that's one of the reasons why many of my students don't like Frankenstein because it's a brain teaser. It's like, how do I have an emotional feeling about the creature's rejection when I can't even <laughs> comprehend the text? Like the writing is not like something they can grab onto. Um, but many students like The Alchemist because it's easier to read. They can relate to the idea of a journey and trying to find oneself and pressure. And I think that's what makes a good high school read is books that can give them some level of relatability and some type of emotional 
impact. And that usually means it has to be readable, comprehensible. Yeah. That's a think, really good question. Thank you. Uh, I, I think teaching high school is probably one of the hardest jobs on the planet. And I give you a lot of credit for that. I, I sincerely do. I know my high school experience was, well, uh, interesting. So I give you a lot of credit. So what accomplish accomplishments uh, at school are you most proud of? Oh, that's so hard because now you're asking me to. <laughs> I'm very hard on myself, so that's really hard <laughs> to answer. Or nobody else I, is, right? We're all these. Right. No, I'm the only person I've ever met. Um, <laughs> I would say I feel really accomplished. Um, so not this previous summer because of COVID, but the summer before, I, one of the counselors at the school recognized, you know, my ability to connect with students and my background in reading. And they asked if I would host a summer reading camp for students identified as below grade level, which is hard at Holy Angels because many students who are there are already very successful or they're accelerated. And so those kids who struggle really can slip through the cracks or be, you know, oh, they're just shy or they're disengaged. And so I had the opportunity to run a reading program with a group of students and it was life changing. It was perspective changing. I had this very skewed perception of what Holy Angels was. And this really opened my eyes to the community and a group of parents who aren't necessarily part of like that AP track. These are a group of parents who are grinding it out. who are trying to help their kids. And I just thought it was such a, I mean, I felt very successful. And then at the end of it, the students took a test and all of them, all of them were passed and it was exceeding. And I just had all these wonderful kudos. And I, I mean, I had not felt that successful in a while. And I just, I thought, okay, I can keep doing this. My cup is filled back up and People are recognizing my passion. So it was amazing. <laughs> well, very good. What do you want your students at your school to, re how do you want them to remember you in your class? They always say that the students don't, that in high school, you don't really remember necessarily what you learned, but you, rep you remember certain experiences. And I pray to God that the experiences are beautiful <laughs> ones and funny mm -hmm. and you know, they, they remember that they were welcomed and it was a place they enjoyed and a place that they didn't dread coming to. I mean, that's my hope. And I have students tell me that and it makes my, it makes me laugh. You know, this is the only class I don't dread going to. I'm like, well, that's really not saying much if you really hate all your other classes. <laughs> I guess I'm the best of the worst, <laughs> you know, like, but I, I hope that they, they feel welcome and invited and that regardless of where they're at in their academic, like, journey, that they have enough skills to sit at the table and that their voice matters. And I, that's my hope. And yeah, that doesn't necessarily have to do with curriculum. And I know the answer that I probably should have said would have been like, they have a love for reading, but maybe that's not going to be the case. And maybe it's just my job to show them compassion and that literature is one avenue of compassion. And there's also, you know, communication and different styles. Cause I also teach, I mean, that's part of English, right? Is, is communications, uh, presentations and confidence and writing. And there's so many layers to it. So if it's not going to be reading, I just hope that they, you know, take away some form of, um, you matter in the day, from the day, from the course, from the years. I think it's really important that you say that because when I look back on my high school years and my junior high years, oftentimes I felt like there was a cookie cutter approach to teaching. 
And if you didn't fit in, then you just didn't get it. And it was like there was one, one method of teaching. And if you didn't get that method, well, sorry, you were just out of luck. And so I just love that you're so inclusive, or it sounds like you're very inclusive and, and passionate about leaving no child left behind, not to coin that phrase, but because I think it's so important that they understand that they are heard and that, you know, you can learn. And if you need a different method of learning, then let's dial into that and make it happen. That's my job. Like, that's really what I view my job as is it's not necessarily understanding. And I tell my students, this, it's not being able to spell every word correctly. It's not being able to know every grammatical rule. It's not knowing every piece of literature and the authors. My job is to be able to teach you and you are all individual. And that's what I view my job as like the rest of that stuff I can Google. Right. But what I can't Google is how I'm going to teach each of my individual students in the method that works best for them. And so that goes back to, am I willing to experiment with the technology so they can learn in an avenue that works for them? Am I willing to use pictures and graphic organizers? And am I willing to stay after school? Like these are the things that make, in my opinion, a really strong teacher because I don't feel like I know it all ever. And, you know, I will say I did have a teacher in high school who made a comment to me my senior year. I was in a college prep chemistry class and I was struggling and I when I didn't feel like I knew something I just kind of gave up and turned into kind of a little bit of a monster (laughs) and he told me as we went into finals I wanted to sign up for college prep physics and he told me that wouldn't be a good idea I honestly don't think you're college material and it shattered me and then Mm -hmm. that same week I got a, a rejection letter from Winona state, which is where I wanted to go. And I, I thought, Oh, it's done. It's over. And I made a vow to myself when I ended up, you know, getting to St. Cloud state and deciding into my major, I made a vow that I would never tell a student ever that they weren't college material. I I sometimes will say maybe college isn't the right Avenue right now, or maybe that's just like, who's to say what's the right Avenue for any of us, you know? And so I, I just, I remember that moment really being um, scary and I never wanted to be that teacher. <laughs> well, no, sometimes comments like that will motivate somebody to prove that other yeah. person wrong. Yep. Yeah, and unfortunately, sometimes not. Yeah. I know, which is what scares me is the not part. Yeah. For me, it was like all I wanted to do was just prove him wrong, but, you know, or mm. do the whole ha-ha kind of thing. <laughs> but. <laughs> When I joined Toastmasters, people would ask me why I would do that because public speaking is such a terrible thing. And I'd just say, <laughs> because they want to learn me to speak scooter. You seem to have a knack for communicating with the kids. Now, if high school was like that back when I went, I might've got more out of it and maybe wouldn't have needed Toastmasters. But are you typical or are you the exception? At Holy Angels, I would say I'm typical, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I just know that my department at Holy Angels is a powerhouse. I feel like every department meeting, I'm in like professional development because the conversations that are being had are just so meaningful. And I think the connections that we are able to make at Holy Angels because of what it offers it offers a community where there's lower class sizes, which means I get to know my students. There's only two English teachers per grade level. So 
you're going to have one of us. And so we get to know families really well and we get to communicate a lot. It's easy because I can go, you know, down the hall to the other 10th grade teacher and I'll say, you know what, I just got this student from you and I'm worried about the writing. Can you talk to me a little bit about this? Oh yeah, here's what works. Mom is great. Send an email. Here's, you know, and it, it, it really feels like we have set, the school has created this opportunity for teachers to be the best we possibly can, which means we have communication, we have built in time to meet, we have, you know, there's many things that make it rewarding to be there as a professional. Because when you feel burnt out, you don't want to work with each other. You don't, you just want to go home. You really do. And when you have class sizes of 32 or more, I feel for those teachers, those ones that are rocking it with those big class sizes, we're not worthy, Wayne's World. Like I just, they're fabulous. This has been such an interesting conversation and I think it really ties in with the words that we use. You've brought us into the world of English teaching and literature and how to impassion students, especially students at that age, how to impassion them to do anything, let alone make their bed, do their laundry, change their socks. <laughs> But you get them excited about some of the classics and the things that really are important and matter in their life. And, and you've really given us an insight in, into your world. And I just admire you for all the passion and caring and understanding that you seem to convey to your students. And it's just been fantastic having you as part of our podcast today. Do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to maybe tell somebody that has a high school student that is not a ferocious reader? and they're really challenged and struggled with getting them to read? Uh, I always tell parents when there's, you know, my kid hates reading, I say start with a graphic novel and don't buy one, buy two, because you're going to read with them. Because if you're not willing to have the conversation and sit, I mean, that's what they're groomed to do in school is they read and then they discuss. So if you want to help engage your student, let them pick the book and whether it be a magazine or a graphic novel or an actual text, I too, because you got to be on board with them. And that's what I think about when coming full circle in this conversation, Ann Doherty, Mrs. Doherty would always have two books, one for her and one for me. And she would be like, we're reading this together. We're talking about it together. And I just think that that's a huge sign to your student, to your child. Like I'm in it with you. It's been great to have you on the podcast. And I think you've lit a spark of passion in all of us. And we're going to go out and try and coach as many it's our path to read a good book, even if it's a classic novel that's got 700 pages. You never know. There might be so many you just can't put down. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Does Calvin and Hobbes count? Yes. <laughs> reading is reading. That's good. The funny thing, just have some cred. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the words we use. Own your voice and make your words matter. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review.